If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. Some of you will know the name Charles Wesley. He is a famous hymn writer, as well as the brother of John Wesley, a famous evangelist from Britain. And many, many years ago, uh, Charles accompanied his brother John to America for a uh, mission trip of sorts to minister among um, the colonies of America and to uh, specifically try and spread the gospel uh, in the state of, or the area that is now Georgia. And in the midst of that, a great storm struck the ship as the Wesleys were traveling home, and both of them were terrified. Yet there were other passengers on the ship as well. They were Christians, and they were not terrified. These Moravian missionaries were gathered together, and they were praying and singing psalms in the midst of the storm that had everyone else believing that they were going to die. As the storm passed and the ship safely made it to dock, Charles Wesley wrote in his diary, Alas, I have a fair-weather Christianity. I have a fair-weather Christianity. As we think about our life this morning as Christians, as those who have confessed faith in Christ, this is what we want to think about, and that is, do we have a fair-weather Christianity? Do we have a Christianity that is robust and is happy and is joyous and is strong as long as things are going well? Or do we have a Christianity that can withstand the most fierce of storms? Maybe we only have a fair weather Christianity. The question is, how do we move past that? How do we move into something deeper? How do we move into a faith that can withstand the storms? That's what we want to see this morning. As we look to Luke chapter 8, and we want to see a very famous story from verses 22 and through, uh, through 25. I encourage you to follow along as I read God's word now. One day Jesus got into a boat with his disciples and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him saying, master, master, we are perishing. And he awoke and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him? May God bless the reading of his word. In these verses, Luke continues his task in showing who Jesus is and why we should put our faith in him. And specifically here, he shows us why the faith that we put in Jesus need not be a fair weather faith. It need not be one that simply rises or falls according to the circumstances of life, but one that can prevail in any circumstance. And so as we try to understand some of the things at least, uh, we will never exhaust uh, this text this morning, but some of the things that this passage teaches us, we first want to see this, we want to see the realness of Christ's humanity. The realness of Christ's humanity. Luke has been showing us amazing things about Jesus over the last few chapters, but as a skillful writer, he wants to make sure that we do not veer too far away from the truth of who Jesus is. He doesn't want us to come out with a lopsided view of Jesus. You'll remember from the very beginning, we saw and he tells us in the opening verses that 
he is writing to show the Gentile leader, Theophilus, that he can have certainty about the things that he has believed. And so Luke wants to continue to continually put into his mind and remind him the things that he's already believed. He wants to, to remind him and show him these are the basics of our faith of Christianity and here's why you can have confidence in believing them. And so in this account, Luke in part wants to drive home again the essential point of Christian doctrine that Jesus was fully human. Now, if you are a Christian and have been for a while, that seems obvious and might wonder what the fuss is about. Why spend time being reminded of such a basic thing? But the reality is two basic errors are common in Christianity, denying the full humanity of Christ or denying the full deity of Christ. For us, it's most often a reaction to so-called liberal Christians who deny the full deity of Christ that we as conservative believers tend to overemphasize the deity of Christ to the point that we forget Christ's full humanity. Certainly, as we will see in a minute, Christ is fully divine. But because we have pressed so hard to fight for that and to make that clear in our doctrinal statements and in our worship and our life, we tend sometimes to have a, a less than human view of Jesus. We read the gospel accounts that he had a body. We believe that he ate and he drank and he lived among us. But there is still something about him that causes us to not fully believe he's human. That is to say that we bear on one level some, some kind of suspicion that underneath those first century robes, there was a, a blue shirt with a red S on it. That he was somehow human, but more than human, better than us, more than we are. Think about what Luke says to us, though. Just previous to this, we saw that Jesus had been through all the cities and villages proclaiming the good news and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And now we're told that the twelve were with him. So Jesus has been moving from city to city, from village to village. He's been preaching. He's been ministering. He's been doing all of these things. He's been doing that with the twelve. And now he says, hey, let's go across the other side of the lake and let's get in this boat and let's do it. And so they say, sure. So they pile into this boat and they set out for the other side of the lake. Thirteen guys are in the boat, but who sleeps? Jesus, right? Why does he sleep? Well, frankly, because he is exhausted, I think, from all of the ministry that he's been doing throughout those towns and villages of preaching and healing the sick and being at everyone's beck and call as they have come to him for ministry and healing. In the vernacular of the day, he is dog-tired. Jesus is whipped. He's worn out from ministry. What does that make him? That makes him a real man. Real men work all day and get tired when they sit down for dinner at the end of their day. Now, women do too, but Jesus is not a woman, so take no offense when I keep talking about a real man, a real man, a real man, okay? The point is, Jesus is a real, physical, easily tired human being. He's not faking sleep here. He's not laying there with one eye open going, ha, 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 I pulled a trick on them. He's really tired. He's really asleep. He's exhausted. He's the dead to the world. In fact, I, I love the, that he is so dead to the world, worn out, that he's in the midst of this insane uh, storm, this raging storm, and yet he's still snoring. That reminds me of me. That's the reason why I like that. Okay, I uh, no lie. When I was in the fourth grade, I was spending the weekend with my grandparents, and uh, my grandpa came in and he began to to wake me up. And I could have swore in my half sleep that he was saying, "You need to come watch something on television." And I thought, 
Grandpa, what in the world? I'm going back to bed. It's like, you know, whatever it was, 12 o'clock at night. So I rolled back over to sleep. And he came back in again. He woke me up. He goes, come on, we have to go to the basement. There's a tornado. Well, then my mind was awake. And so, but the reality, the thing was, they had a little spare bed down in their unfinished basement. And so I said, as they're hovered around this emergency radio, listening to every report as this tornado is bearing down and coming through the town, I said, can, can I get back in the bed? And they said, sure, cover up and get warm. And I slept through the whole thing. The next day, signs have been down, houses are destroyed, destruction is imminent, and what did I do? I slept through the whole thing. Why? Because I was tired. Okay? All the more so, Jesus. And I think about him sleeping in the midst of these ragings, this raging storm and these other 12 guys not sleeping through this storm. And these are we guys too. And, and they're used to being on the open sea. You know, through the generosity of others, I have experienced just about every size boat and ship you can imagine. I've been on a canoe. I've been in a two-man fishing boat. I've been in a family-sized pontoon. I've even been on a carnival cruise ship. I'm still waiting for Pastor Joe to get me on a Navy aircraft carrier, but I'm not sure it's going to happen. Okay, I'd like that, but I'm not sure it's going to happen. And not surprisingly, you're on the cruise ship, and uh, even when in the middle of the night, because you're kind of off on the time zones, you wake up, and there's a storm raging. There's, there's rain beating on your window. You don't feel anything. You're just kind of cruising along, you know, and so I roll back over and I go back to sleep. Uh, and But some of you have been on those small boats. When it's not even been stormy out, but the sea has been choppy, the, the, the lake has been rough, and you know sometimes it's even hard to keep your lunch down. Um, you, you, you get a real seasickness and are not really happy with what's going on. But here is Jesus. The wind and the waves blowing and he is simply sleeping it out. He's weak, he's tired, he's human. He has genetic makeup. He has DNA that dictates what the pigment of his skin is going to be and what his eye color is going to be and how many hair follicles he's going to have on his head and on his face and on his body. When he got cold, he would shiver. When he got hot, he would sweat. When he ate and drank, he did so to stay alive because he needed the nourishment. And when he ate spoiled vegetables or rotten fish, he would get sick. The point is, Jesus is just like you or me, except in this, he was without sin. The Bible emphasizes that over and over and over again, even here. The question is, why does the Bible emphasize that? Well, it does so for a couple of reasons. In fact, many reasons, but you're only going to get a couple this morning. First of all, we need to understand and believe that he is really human so that in Jesus we have a real example to follow. We have a real example to follow. When the Bible exhorts us to persevere in suffering, to spend time with sinners to memorize scripture, to give up food, to fast and pray, to be humble before others. In other words, do all the things that we don't naturally want to do. And it points to Jesus as the example. Part of us wants to say, yeah, but he was Jesus. Yeah, but he was Jesus. He could do those things. I can't do those things. And so we balk at that idea of him as an example. But we shouldn't because he was a real human being. He was human in weakness and limitations just like we are. In his humanity, he did not do anything that we ourselves cannot do. In fact, just this week at our elders meeting, we were looking at a devotional from Hebrews 9 and we saw it was in fact by the empowerment of God's Holy Spirit 
that Jesus was able to live a life of righteousness that he might offer himself blameless to God. Guess what? Jesus poured out that same spirit on his people at Pentecost and he gives it to each and every one of us when we put faith in him. In other words, the things that we see Jesus do that any normal Christian would be expected to do, we can do because he was a man just like us in every respect and yet he lived by the power of God's spirit that we ourselves have been given. So because Jesus is really human, we have a real example to follow. But more than that, secondly, we have a real savior to trust. We have a real savior to trust. Hebrews is also helpful in connecting Jesus' humanity to our confidence in him as our savior. Hopefully, if you're in our community groups, you've been seeing that on Sunday nights. We see three ways that it does this. First of all, we're told in chapter 9 that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. We want our sins forgiven. Blood has to be shed. What's the problem? Hebrews also says the blood of bulls and goats, the blood of animals will never take away sin. So, so what does that mean? We need, it means we need a better blood, right? Have you ever thought about the fact that the reason why Jesus took on flesh was so that his blood could be spilled? You, you don't have blood unless you have a body. So, so Jesus becomes a real person that he might die, that he might shed his blood, that a true atoning worthy blood might be offered for behalf of his people. More than that, as we just said, without a body there is no blood, so with blood there is also a body. Why does he have a body? Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 tells us that he took on flesh so that through death, through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all of us who trust in him. So Jesus took on a body, not just to spill blood, but that he might experience the reality of human death. Why? Because he will be raised back to life and therefore will show death to be conquered by his sacrifice and by his resurrection, thus freeing us from the fear of death, that is, us who believe. Finally, we're told also in chapter 2 of Hebrews that Jesus is human and therefore like us in every respect. And therefore, he also experienced temptation just like us. Every temptation that you experience, though the details might be different, the actual temptation to sin is something that Jesus himself experienced more than once, probably. More than once. Imagine if Satan knows all of the buttons that it takes to push us and get us to sin and therefore delights to throw out these small piddly temptations. How about Jesus who never sinned? Everything in the arsenal of hell was thrown at him and yet he did not sin. So when you are tempted to sin, you know Jesus can not just sympathize with you, he can empathize with you. He has been there in the midst of that temptation and he has resisted. More than that, he can help those, we are told, who are being tempted. He can stand as the example and give grace as our resurrected Savior. So this is why the humanity of Christ is so important. This is why Luke continues to drive it home in his gospel. Because he is a real man who experienced real humanity. In Jesus, you have a Savior that you can fully trust. He has blood that atones for our sin. He has a body that experienced death and resurrection that he might defeat the power of death and sin and the devil. And now we have a living Savior who has overcome every temptation and is now able to sympathize with us and help us when we are tempted. We see the realness of Christ's humanity 
and it's an encouragement to us. But secondly, we also see the authority of Christ's deity. The authority of Christ's deity. In A.D. 451, Christian leaders gathered together for the council of Chalcedon to answer the teachings of false teachers. They were there to reaffirm the truths of Christianity against heretics of the day. And there they came up with a term, the hypostatic union, to describe the being of Christ. Well, that sounds pretty fancy, but it's actually a pretty simple term. Hypostatic comes from a Greek word that means nature. So we see that in the Bible, in Hebrews, we are told Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Same word. It's hypostatic, nature. Union, of course, we know what that means, the joining together of two or more things. And so this is what Christian leaders were affirming and saying, we believe, we affirm in the hypostatic union, that is, in Jesus, there is joined together in perfect union, two natures, full humanity and full deity. Now, the question is, was that just theologians uh, running off with great ideas and philosophies? Was that just the speculation of ancient pastors with really cool beards? Or is that what the Bible teaches? And the reality is, that's what the Bible teaches, which is why they affirmed it. They, 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 they coined the phrase hypostatic union because they believed that the truth that they were speaking is what the Bible taught. We just saw that from Hebrews 1 in our community groups. We all see it in John 1, where we're told that from eternity past, Jesus was with God and was God. We see it in Colossians 1 where Paul says Jesus is the image of the invisible God and that in Him all the fullness of God dwells bodily. Later he'll write to Titus and speak of the great glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Two things, one person. We go on and on and on, but my point is the Bible is abundantly clear in affirming Jesus' full humanity and His full deity. But more than that, it is demonstrated in Jesus' life even in a passage like this. Luke tells us that as they set out, verse 23, a windstorm came down the lake and they were, and they were filling with water and were in danger. Now scholars tell us the Sea of Galilee, which is where they're at, is currently about 12 miles long and 6 miles wide, but it was much larger than that in Jesus' day. It sits about 700 feet below sea level, but on its north side sits Mount Hermon, which rises 9,000 feet above sea level. And so from May to October, you get these vicious winds that often sweep down through the valley, causing sudden storms. As one commentator says, Galilee was the perfect place for the perfect storm. And that's exactly what we have in this passage. We have these guys get in this boat and without warning, uh, without, without knowing it's going to happen, suddenly these guys are panicking big time because the storm has kicked up. Now remember, half of these guys are fishermen. Half of these guys are fishermen from this area and have experience on this lake. They know storms. They've been here. They've done this before. And yet this terrifies them. Because so violent is the storm. You notice it doesn't just say the boat is filling with water. It says they were filling with water. In other words, there's no chance, at least in their minds, they're going to make out of this thing alive. Everything is being deluged with water, and they think, we are going down. Now that's, you think about the guys that are hardened fishermen who are used to the sea, and they're afraid. Think about some poor guy like Matthew, a tax collector all of his life, maybe never been in a boat. I mean, you can imagine the first time he's got this fancy robe, and he's pulling it up, trying not to get it wet as he gets in, and Peter's like, splashes him with water. And like, yeah, come on, you're going to get wet eventually. He must have been going out of his mind fearful of what's taking place here. They're pitching, they're yawning, the boat is filling with water. 
Luke says they believe they were in danger and that fear drives them to wake Jesus up. Verse 24. Help us. Help us. We are perishing. So he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was calm. Jesus sleeps through the storm, but then his disciples wake him up and he sets up and boom, with a word, a rebuke, the storm stops. He issues a command, the blowing winds die down, the pouring rain ceases, the raging waves become calm, creation itself obeys the command of Christ. Why? Because he is the one who made it. He is the one who made it. If Paul and the apostles are right and that Jesus was God in the flesh, then he is the one who made the wind and the waves, and therefore he has authority over them. And it's in the response of the disciples that we know this is how we are to understand this text. Luke says, They were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? Now they've seen Jesus do miracles before. Why are they so amazed? Why are they so amazed? Because as scary as the storm was, this was far scarier. See, all these guys are are Jews. They're pious Jews who were looking for the Messiah. Even if they were sinful, they had a desire for God. They went to the temple and offered sacrifices as they were commanded in the law. They were part of the synagogues where they heard the scriptures proclaimed. They knew the Bible. They knew Jesus was a man sent from God. They knew he was a wise teacher. They knew he was a mighty prophet. They knew he was a man of great moral integrity. But this was something far beyond that. Because as they see what takes place, as they experience what he's done, surely in their minds is ringing the Psalms that they would have heard over and over and over again throughout their life that they themselves have sung in times of trouble and times of joy that Jesus would one day sing with them at the end of the first Lord's Supper. So Jesus wakes up, he tells the storm to be still, it obeys, and here's what is going through their mind. Psalm 67. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the ways, the tumult, of the peoples. They're thinking of Psalm 89. O Lord God of hosts, who is as mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you? You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. They're thinking of Psalm 107. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from trouble. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits' end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Fully man, and now fully God. 
Jesus of Nazareth, son of Mary and Joseph, the carpenter, sitting in a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And the disciples are starting to get it. The disciples are starting to see it. The question is, have we seen it? Have we come to terms, really come to terms with who Jesus is? Have we come to understand and to believe what the scriptures tell us, what the eyewitnesses bear witness to? Do we see him as something more than what the world sees? Do we see him not just as a great moral example or religious teacher or social revolutionary, but the savior of the world? Do we see him as the eternal God who took on flesh to die for his people, who was raised back to life and is now worthy of all of our worship, even as we just sang? Do we see him as the one true and living God in whose presence we need never fear anything in heaven and on earth? We've seen the fullness of Christ's humanity, the authority of Christ's deity. And with those questions ringing in our ears, it's here we need to see the challenge of Christ's rebuke. The challenge of Christ's rebuke. Notice that after Jesus calms the storm, he has a word for the disciples. What does he say? Simply this, where is your faith? Where is your faith? Now, what, what is the nature of this rebuke? I don't think Jesus is outright berating the disciples here. It's a rebuke, but I think it's a mild rebuke. And the rebuke is not, as some would say, a rebuke for not believing that God would take care of them. Too many times when something good happens in our lives and we're rescued from evil, we will say something along the lines of, God is faithful. Okay, so my question is, when something bad happens, can you still affirm God is faithful? Because the way we use that phrase, it's when, when my needs are met, when I'm well taken care of according to what I think, and my life is easy, God is faithful. What happens when life is not easy? Is God still faithful? Well, He is, but do you acknowledge Him as that? See, God will always act according to His plan and His purposes and His promises. But God has never promised us an easy life. God has never promised us that, that in this life, Everything that we want for an easy life will be met. What he has told us is that we will have everything that we need according to his wise plan and purposes. That means there are going to be times when life is not easy. When life will be hard. When difficult things will happen. As we think about that, we need only just turn our minds to the news. Perhaps to our own life experience and realize that that's true. That we cannot go through life blindly, uh, uh, go through life blindly ignoring the effects of sin in the world. It might be a small tornado that takes a life of a few or a tsunami that, that clears out an entire city and takes the life of, of hundreds. It might not be a storm at all. It might be cancer that kills the 90-year-old or the 2-year-old or everyone in between. My point is this, Jesus is not saying you should have believed that life was going to be great and easy and God was going to spare you. No, the rebuke comes because they didn't understand who Jesus was. Because if they had believed who Jesus really was, then they would have known as terrible as things looked, they were going to be okay. Think about it. Think about it. If Jesus was really the promised Messiah... If he was really the savior that God had promised to send his people for hundreds of years, who had made covenant oaths, staking his name and his glory on the sending of this Messiah, 
If this was the man they expected to rule and reign from David's throne, and if it was the same God that defeated Egypt, part of the Red Sea, caused the sun to stand still for Joshua, and so much more was also the same Almighty God who sent Jesus as the fulfillment of His promises, then do you really think, disciples, He's going to die by some accidental storm? If all the plans and purposes of God hang on this man Jesus, in this boat, in this storm, who is asleep, do you really think God is going to just let the boat overturn and him drown in the sea? No. No. And so here is the lesson. Here is the reason for the rebuke. It's not that they had little faith. It's not that they had no faith. It's that they didn't have real faith. The faith that they had in Jesus was not the Jesus of who, of who he really was. It wasn't the reality of who he was. They had faith in a less than Jesus, Jesus. That was not fully God. That was not fully man. That was not fully the Messiah, even as they understood it. Some of you know the story of Corey Ten Boone. She was a Dutch Christian who was raised by Christian parents during World War II and When the Nazis invaded the Netherlands in 1940, her parents committed to helping hide and smuggle out of the country the Jews that were being rounded up and sent to concentration camps. And in an effort to to help aid their their ministry in this way, they created a uh, a fake wall with with an empty an empty void in the closet of their daughter Corey. It became known as the hiding place, and when raids would happen, when the Nazis would come looking for Jews, they could send them upstairs to 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 stand. There was about a 30-inch gap where they could they could huddle back there and remain quiet while the Nazis looked around and then left and not be taken. But a neighbor who discovered what they were doing ultimately sold them out to the Nazis, and the whole family went to prison and eventually to a political concentration camp. Tin Boone endured all of that by her faith in God. And when she would later give talks and and write books about her experience, people would come up to her and say, you have such a great faith. And you know what her response always was? No, I don't. But I have a great God. I have a great God. The Bible is clear over and over and over again. It is not the amount of your faith that is important. It is what you are putting your faith in. And because we are idolaters by nature, we can take even the Lord Jesus Christ and we can twist Him and we can refashion Him and shape Him into a God that we want to worship that is easier to worship and not the God that He really is. Not the Savior that He really is. That's what the disciples themselves had done. Corey Timboon and so many others have shown even the, the apostles after the resurrection they show that they can endure much by their faith in God, but it's faith in the one true God, the one in whom they have their confidence. And the question is, are, are we like the disciples here in this boat, or are we like them after the resurrection when they come to truly know who Jesus is? Again, it's impossible to have, it's possible to have all the faith in the world, even faith in Jesus but not to be trusting in the Jesus of the Bible, to not be trusting in the real Jesus. I mean, how many people have you heard say, I can't imagine Jesus would ever send someone to hell. I can't imagine Jesus would would be mad at me because, because my heart fell in love with somebody else, so I left my husband for them. 
Or because my friend is so nice, but they're homosexual. I can't imagine Jesus would condemn them to hell for their sin. That's fine, but I don't want to worship your Jesus because he's not real. He's a figment of your imagination created by a couple of stories and what you think is right and best and happy. But the Jesus of the Bible is so much more than that. He is so much more than that. He is far holier than that, but he's also far more loving than that. And therefore, the call for us is always to hear this rebuke, where is your faith? And think, am I looking to the real Christ as he has revealed himself in his word without caveat, without hesitation? That's the calling of faith. And Jesus says, even that kind of faith, though it be the size of a mustard seed, the smallest seed around, it's still enough to move mountains because your faith is in the real Jesus. So if we do that, if we trust in the real Jesus, what can we expect? What benefit is there from faith in Jesus? This is the last thing I want to see today, and that is the comfort of Christ's presence. The comfort of Christ's presence. Listen again to our passage. One day Jesus got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, what, who, who then is this, that he commands even winds and water, and they obey him? First of all, notice who put the disciples in this boat and led them into the storm. It was none other than Jesus himself. And here we need to then take comfort because of Jesus' sovereign presence. We should take comfort because of his sovereign presence. In one of her books, Elizabeth, Elizabeth Elliot tells a story about one time being at uh, a place where she was watching sheep be dipped in large vats of insecticide. This was done once every couple of months, and when she talked to the shepherds taking care of those sheep, because of where they lived, if this was not done, they would literally be eaten alive with insect bites. It would begin with irritation, it would begin with pain, then it would become bloating, then it would become death for those sheep. But they had no idea what was going on when they were putting that vat. All they knew is this shepherd who would lead them to water, who would lead them to food, who would care for them, who would speak kindly to them or to warn them was suddenly shoving their head down in this liquid as if to drown them. And, 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 and they, would, they would shake and they would try and get loose not knowing what is going on. Imagine if that, that sheep could think like a human. You know, what in the world are you doing to me? You're supposed to be taking care of me. You're trying to kill me. You're trying to drown me. Likewise with us, difficulty comes, suffering comes, and sometimes we are tempted to be like sheep and say, Jesus, what are you doing with me? You're supposed to be the good shepherd. You're killing me. You're tormenting me here. What are you doing? And what we need to understand here is that we're just sheep. We're not the shepherd. We cannot always see the wonders of divine providence and work. We're not privy to the wisdom with which God rules the universe, but... We can take comfort in the presence of Christ who is with us in our adversity. We can take comfort that he is still shepherding us, leading us even in the midst of our adversity. Jesus is there. He doesn't forget us. He doesn't leave us be. He doesn't say, well, I didn't know that was coming. Sorry. No, of course he does. And now, as the resurrected Lord, 
He rules and reigns over all those things. Secondly, I love the observations that Kent Hughes makes. Even though Jesus sleeps soundly through the storm, he awakes immediately at the pleas of his disciples. Don't you love that? I mean, rain, thunder, lightning, you're assuming howling wind. But the minute the disciples say, Master, we're perishing, boom, he's awake and ready to help. Jesus is perfectly secure with trusting his heavenly father, so he sleeps in the storm, but he's also ready to act at a moment's notice when his people need him. That's why, secondly, we see the comfort of his compassionate presence. The comfort of his compassionate presence. Here's why you and I as Christ's disciples never need to fear anything from the world. And I mean never. You might have a stressful day at work and feel like, I can't handle it, I can't deal with it. Yes, you can. You you might be a parent who's at home with the kids and they're just going crazy. You think, I can't handle this, I can't deal with it. Yes, you can. You might have a long-term relationship that you think is going somewhere that's going to last forever in the bliss of love and boom, you break up and you think, I can't deal with this, I can't handle that. Yes, you can. You might have someone who's made a commitment, your spouse, and they walk out on you. And you say, I can't deal with this, I can't deal with this. Yes, you can. You might have a, a, a diagnosis of, of chronic pain or even fatality. You're, you're going to be gone in three years. I can't deal with this. Yes, you can. Because Christ is with you. Even when you feel like there is no help available, when life is crushing in on you and you're not going to be able to get through it, stop and remember who is in the boat with you. Remember who is with you. It is not Jesus the moral teacher. It is not Jesus the good example. It is not Jesus the religious leader. It is Jesus Lord of the storm. It is Jesus fully human. And so understand your fears. Understand your anxiety. Understand your pain. But it is also Jesus who is fully divine and in sovereign control over all things with infinite power at His command. He can speak a word And hurricanes go away as if they never existed. Jesus, the eternal I am, the almighty God is with us. So in Jesus, we have both divine compassion and divine power. And because we have both of those things in him, a loving brother, a loving older brother of our heavenly father, even in the worst of times, we have everything that we need to get through. We have everything that we need to persevere We have everything that we need to endure with joy. With joy. And so this morning, we end with this question. Where is your faith? Is it in the Jesus of the Bible, as we have seen him even from this passage? Or is it in a different Jesus, a Jesus of your own making? If it's in anything else, any person besides the Jesus of the Bible, then you will not endure, you will not make it, you will not even see God. But if you trust in the Jesus of the Bible, then any storm that comes, no matter how difficult, you will have a Savior to guide you through. More than that, you will have a Savior for whom He died for you. That you might live forever with Him in the presence of God. In Christ, you have everything that you need. Let's pray and thank God for Him now. Father, we are so thankful for your son, Jesus. We're thankful for this story which shows us how amazing and mysterious it is that he would come into this world 
forever God the Son and yet also now the Son of Man taking on human flesh to understand us, to be in place of us, to atone sin for us, and yet also to reveal you to us. God, we are thankful for the Savior we have in Jesus and we pray that we would put our faith in Him. And that God, in doing so, we would find comfort and peace and security in this life, even in the most dire of situations. God, may we find comfort and protection in Jesus, the great shepherd of your sheep. Father, we are thankful for him. Help us to trust him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. In response to the message that we've heard this morning, I want us to stand and sing, All I Have is Christ.